bring back that, that thought into their thinking, which, to be fair, in 1 Thessalonians, looked like it was quite prominent, but due to circumstances, due to difficulties, it had started to fade away. And as a result, that's what they need. And that's how Caleb started off the series. However, unfortunately, two weeks ago, Joe stole that from us, sadly. I don't know if you remember the talk. In fact, I'll be honest, one of the great privileges of being an elder is that uh, Caleb comes to you first to ask which um, preach you want to do. You, are, you get first dibs. And I'll be honest, I avoided Joe's, one's, Joe's one like the plague. I didn't want to talk about the man of lawlessness, about the end times. I thought Joe did a superb job. Um, it was not a sermon I would ever have wanted to preach, but he did a, a terrific job. But nonetheless, it seemed to say that all that hope that Caleb had talked about was gone that this man of lawlessness was going to have his restraints removed, that actually things were not, as we come towards the end times, as we're in the end times, that actually things were going to get worse and worse. And ironically, at the start of Joe's passage, two weeks ago, the Thessalonians were told not to be shaken or alarmed. And then he proceeded to tell us all about this man of lawlessness. And I was thinking, actually, at the end of that, I feel more shaken and more alarmed than I did before. So how on earth can Paul be saying that, that we shouldn't be shaken or alarmed, when actually it looks really unsettling what's going on? In fact, it got me thinking um, about what's going on at the moment. If we look at that idea of lawlessness, in fact, what I did was I just had a quick look at Matthew 24, where um, uh, Jesus talks about the signs of, of, uh, of, what, of the end. Um, it, he actually talks about things such as, and I, I looked at these, um, such as um, wars between nations. And you can see, you know, um, second one down on the right there, the, um, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, obviously very, uh, you know, we talk about it every Sunday, really. But Again, that, that war between nations is really um, a, a feature of the end times. Rumours of war, top right, you can see Russia threatening other countries. Rumours of wars that are about to happen. I read in the news this morning that um, there's actually training going on with the uh, Finnish and Swedish air forces alongside the RAF to prepare them in case of a war with Russia. And so, as a result, we see this coming through. Kingdom against kingdom, it says in Matthew 24. That's another sign. Again, you can see further down on the right there, another Scottish referendum, independence referendum coming up, which, by the way, is a key bugbear. I don't get how you can be part of a United Kingdom and claim you're going to become independent. I think we should get a vote on that as well, shouldn't we, if it's a United Kingdom? That's just my thought. Um, I'm, I'm not going to ask how people would vote on that, but uh, nonetheless, there's too many Scots in the, in the congregation this morning. Um, but nonetheless, kingdom against kingdom, you can see it happening. Famine in the Yemen and in Ethiopia as well. It also mentions earthquakes, earthquake in Afghanistan recently. So you look around the world and you think, all these signs of lawlessness are very clear indicators that, yes, we're definitely in the end times, but not only that, probably we're right to be shaken, we're right to be unsettled. So what is it that actually means Paul can say we should not be shaken? Despite all of these things, what is it that leads Paul to be able to say that actually we shouldn't be shaken. And the reason is, and we're going to focus on this this morning, is that we have a very real hope. It's not just a vague, unreal, optimistic notion that tomorrow will be better. I was reading online about a, a survey they did of Americans where they were talking about what their great fears are at the moment and what their cause of optimism is. And the cause of optimism was tomorrow will be better. And that was literally it. 
That's not the case for us as Christians. Not the case at all, in fact. In fact, our notion, our, our certainty, our certain hope is based on the knowledge that God loves us. This is about, we've been focusing on building up, building out. This is about building down. It's about making sure our foundations are strong and that we can trust God and rely on him as a result. In fact, my title this morning, and please forgive me for the uh, take on uh, James Bond. I've kind of reversed it, so my apologies to any Bond fans there. His martini is uh, slightly different here. Uh, He would object to this. Um, It's actually about being stirred rather than shaken. And in fact, I'm going to start with it the other way around. Actually, just kind of fitted nicely that way, didn't it? But um, not shaken. First of all, the first word I want to start with is this word, but. Because when I look at how Joe finished his talk two weeks ago, this was the end part of the passage that he read on. And you read this passage and you think, this just makes me more shaken, like I was saying before. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power that will serve the lie, all the ways that wickedness deceives. People perish. God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and will be condemned. It's pretty awful stuff. But then the next verse says, but. And that's why that's my first point, but. In fact, this is where Paul shifts from the bad news, which has come before, to the good no matter how things become, bad things become in the world, Christians are expected to be different. That's why there's that but there. And in condensed form, Paul now goes on in just two verses to pull together seven aspects of the truth that are to be relied on to provide a steadiness for us in really difficult times. And I've stolen these seven aspects from a guy called Stedman. Back in, he, wrote, he did this sermon back in 1988. I found it online. Really, really good sermon. So if you ever have a chance, have a look at it. But he talks about seven aspects. So it starts with but, and then two verses. He talks through the reasons why we can be secure, why we do not or should not be shaken. First of all, we're loved by the Lord. We need to remember that we, Jesus loves us. As a result of that, we don't need to be shaken. There's a certainty there. And because of that, he cho- God chose us. Because Jesus loves us, God chose us. And the purpose of that, that uh, cho- being chosen is to be saved. So three things already. God loves us. Jesus, sorry, Jesus loves us. God chose us. And that is so that we can be saved. Next one he says is, that is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And we can see here the Trinity all operating collegiately to make sure that we have that foundation to rely on. So the process of being saved is through that sanctification by the Spirit. We do have a role in this. We also need to believe in the truth. That's, part of our, that's our job here as part of that cooperative, collaborative work. We need to believe in the truth. And the step that brings us to that is being called through the gospel, knowing that we are called, having that certainty of being called. And the ultimate goal of it all, which again is something that that certain hope that we're looking forward to, is that we share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a fabulous promise, isn't it? 
that we can share in his glory. I sometimes wonder if I can even actually conceive of what that really means. I wonder if we will ever actually fully understand that before we get to heaven. I think it's probably highly unlikely. But that we should someday share the triumph of the cross with Jesus himself. We get to take part in that. We get to share in that. So just to summarize these seven aspects of the truth, we don't need to be shaken, but we do need to be sure that we are loved, that we are chosen, that we are saved, that we are sanctified, that we are believers who are called in order to share in that, um, in that triumph of Jesus on the cross. So actually, instead of being shaken, the but that that leads to says this is why Christians can and should be different. Because there is so much to draw on. So quite a phenomenal two verses where Paul just does a, a great job of pulling together the truths that underpin the reason why we should be as we are. My second point is this. He, de- he says, so then. There are these great, um, what's the word for them in English, right? The conjunctions or something. Yeah, conjunctions. Um, where Paul joins together different passages. And as a result of that, when you look at these conjunctions, you can see the progress of Paul's thinking as he's saying this. Bear in mind, he probably verbalized this. He probably didn't write this himself. He had somebody to write it for him. And as he's speaking it out, it's almost like it triggers another thought. So he's talked about all the, the man of lawlessness and the awfulness that goes with that. But he suddenly thinks, oh, yeah, I need to explain why Christians are different. And then, he says, and then he thinks, okay, so I've explained that. That's the theory. So then what do I expect Christians to do as a result of that? What's the knock-on effect of that? We know in theory why we shouldn't be shaken. The practice can be quite different, can't it? We know that. It's difficult to actually call on those things. And I find myself when I'm going through difficult times, I forget those things. Don't We all do it, I suspect we lose track of why it is we actually shouldn't be shaken. We get so in the moment that we get distracted from the foundations that we should be relying on. And that's why this building down is so important. So then he says, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So two Key things. I'll just mention, actually, this, this triggered a thought for me, actually, of, um, sorry, history teacher again, you all know, you expect this. I almost need, like, a, a, an indication on the screen, don't I, so I don't need to keep repeating it, history teacher moment. Um, but it did remind me, when I read this, of a guy called uh, Martin Luther. Okay, Martin Luther, very famously, during the Reformation, he was the one who started the Reformation in many ways, he came up with some very anti-established um, church, Catholic church at the time, uh, statements of what he, how he felt faith should work and what Jesus was saying in the Bible and so on. And he then got called before a council, which, I, for some reason, I always remember this, it was called the Council of Worms, which sounds very odd, but Worms was a place. Um, and he gets called to the Council of Worms to answer for what he has said, which is blatantly heretical. And the Catholic Church are very anti what he said, and there's a serious prospect of him being burnt at the stake as a result of what he has said. And he stands in front of the council, and he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant, meaning to pull back from what I've said, change my mind, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. That phrase, here I stand, I can do no other, has gone down in history 
as one of the key phrases about holding fast and standing firm. This was the origin of the Protestant church when Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. So under massive threat, bear in mind 100 years before, a guy called Jan Hus, sorry, this is me properly going to history teacher mode, I apologise, but a guy called Jan Hus in, in uh, Czechoslovakia, in what was the Czech Republic, uh, or is now the Czech Republic, he actually came out with a lot of the ideas that Martin Luther did. He was burnt at the stake for those beliefs. Martin Luther refuses to change his mind because he has read the word of God, and he says, I am going to stand by that. And that actually led, in many ways, you could argue, to us sitting here this morning. So stand firm. Don't give in to pressure. Don't believe fake news, you could argue, is another way of interpreting it these days. Bear in mind that part of the reason why Paul emphasises here, whether by word of mouth or by letter, as Joe mentioned a couple of weeks ago, was because they'd had a false letter claiming to be from Paul that was indicating to them that they had missed the day of judgment and things like that. So as a result, we've got to be very careful about fake news as well, haven't we? We've got to be very wary of that. Rely on God's resources. We've got to trust God that actually he has got our back. There is no reason for us to give in or quit. But actually, he is providing us with that sure foundation that means we can rely on him. One of the key ways of doing that is to think back on his past mercies towards us. We have evidences from previously of the things he has done for us that have brought us out of difficult situations. And in exactly the same way, we need to stand firm on those foundations, not just of what he said to us and promised to us, but also of how the evidence of that has worked out in our lives already previously. Also says, hold fast. Hold fast. Don't give up the truth. And again, that's part of what Martin Luther was saying when he stood before the Council of Worms. Paul had already told them, he actually says, I've already told you the truth when I was with you in person, but, as we know, they've been shaken. And as a result, he's saying, no, you do know what the truth is. You know where you should stand. You know what you should stand on. Interestingly, quite a lot of translations, actually, instead of here, it's the NIV version where it talks about the teachings, they actually talk about the traditions. And sometimes that can actually throw people because traditions can be interpreted as a, as a, as a word in a range of different ways. But Paul is not referring here to man-made traditions. We have traditions in this church, don't we? We always have three songs before the talk. We, generally speaking, have a talk. We have a way of doing things, don't we? Those are man-made traditions. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying, always have three songs before your talk. Actually, he's talking about apostolic traditions, those that actually were passed on by him from God. And as an example of that, 1 Corinthians 11, he actually mentions communion, the Lord's Supper. He says that is one of those traditions. Reading God's word, sticking to it, as Martin Luther did. These are the traditions or teachings. That's why the NIV retranslated it as teachings, just to avoid that confusion. So you have to stand firm on what you read in God's word. Hold fast to those teachings and those traditions that have been communicated. And actually, fundamentally, the great resource of every believer is God himself. When in trouble, we can expect God who is our strength, this is what it, how he finishes the, uh, Second Thessalonians, uh, sorry, chapter 2, um, how he finishes it, God is our great resource. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us 
who gave us eternal comfort, who gave us good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So actually, our great resource is God himself. And when in trouble, he is our defense. He will supply the strength we need. He will supply the comfort to get us through. And actually, what we need to do, part of our job, and this is where we find it really difficult, because I don't know about you, but I want to take control when I'm in a difficult situation. I want to be in charge of it and actually dictate how it's going to work out. And actually, what, God's, what we've been told here by Paul is we've got to sit back and let God do that. God unfolds our solution, not us. And the patience that takes is really difficult because I think it's quite natural for us to want to take back control of our own situation. Obviously, the Thessalonians had actually already experienced this supply. So I've already mentioned about the evidences of God's past mercies and those being there to rely on. Well, the Thessalonians had been through, we've seen that in 1 Thessalonians, they've been, been through some very difficult times. God brought them through those the gospel flourished despite that. And actually, that's such an important thing to remember, that actually when we let that famous phrase about letting go and, letting, and let God, let go and let God, actually the blessing is disproportionate as a result if we do allow God to act rather than trying to do it ourselves. Because we know that God brings good for Christians regardless of what we do and how we do it, nonetheless... God will still bless, no doubt, but the blessing is far greater, I think, if we do rely on God instead and let him work out the solution that probably he always intended. So, that's my first set of points. Don't be shaken with a but and a so then. But actually, that's kind of quite a neutral position to be in, isn't it? I was reading a Puritan writer recently who I'm going to refer to later on as I finish, um, but he, often refer, he, he actually refers to certain things where you end up in a neutral position as being too low for a Christian. And it is too low for a Christian just to not be shaken, isn't it? Just to be stable is not enough. God actually expects more of us, which is why my third point, my final point, is that we actually need to be stirred. It's too low for a Christian just not to be shaken. We actually need to do something active as a result of that. So Paul says at the end here, finally. So the chapter markers, you may well be aware of this, in the Bible are totally artificial. They were never there originally. They were put in place by someone else. And actually, the whole of this letter flows from one passage to the next. So we cross over now from chapter 2 into chapter 3. I'm doing the last five verses of chapter three, but that is purely artificial anyway. Paul never intended for there to be chapter markers there in any case. So Paul, bear in mind, is writing from Corinth. And they are, he's actually trying to do the same thing in Corinth as he had done in Thessalonica. And actually within three weeks of preaching in the synagogue, he's managed with God's blessing and grace to establish a church there. And so now he writes the Thessalonians, finally, brothers, Pray for us. So the first stirring that we need to have is not just to not be shaken, but be stirred to pray. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you. You know that this can happen because you've seen it for yourselves. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So two prayers that he suggests. Prayer that God's word would speed ahead. 
Interestingly, the phrase that's used here uh, along the lines of speed ahead is the same wording or the same language that is used of an Olympic athlete racing in a race. May the word of the Lord race like an Olympic athlete through Corinth and be honoured, as it did with you. So you've seen this for yourselves. You've seen it with your own eyes that God can do this. We know he can do it. Let's be stirred to pray for more of it. And the second prayer is for protection, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. The suggestion there, sadly, is that this is actually opposition from within the church itself. That this, this isn't necessarily from external people. This is people in the church who claim to be believers, but actually had no real faith and were making things particularly difficult as a result. Interestingly, you'll note, he doesn't ask, Paul does not ask here, for that opposition to be removed, to be eliminated. There's no hint of that. He just asks for deliverance from that opposition. Because I think he appreciates that sometimes, actually, that opposition can be a good thing. It can actually stir us more in a positive way as well. But to be delivered through it is the key thing. And actually, Paul then moves on from this in the final three verses I'm going to talk about to talk about other stirrings. And these are the, he actually it sort of almost triggers in him. He, he, he's, he's fascinating to read as a person because it's almost like he suddenly thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm talking too much about myself now. Um, I need to go back. That triggers a thought for me. I need to be thinking about the Thessalonians and how they need blessing at the moment. So this, this triggers him to move back to the Thessalonians. And he says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So two stirrings that he suggests here. Stirred to trust. He will establish, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you. So trust him. Don't lose sight of that. He won't fail you, but will always deliver you if you trust him. He will never test you more than you are capable of being tested. That's another promise that we have in his word. And secondly, stirred to obedient action. You are doing and will do the things that we command. He knows they will make the right choices. They will obey. But, interestingly, he does say, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So he acknowledges that actually that requires from us, from them at the time, a, 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 a necessity to dwell in the love of God and to follow the prime example of Christ as regards his patience and steadfastness, his ability to hold or to stand firm and to hold fast. We model ourselves on that. And actually, that's an indication of, you know, we talk about building up and building down. These are mutually reinforcing because as we build up in our love of God, as we build up in terms of looking to the example of Christ, in the same way we are building down, we're establishing those strong foundations that enable us to really thrive despite the circumstances we're in. In fact, just as I, I move towards a, a conclusion here, um, I'm just going to give you a, my apologies. Oh, Simon's not here, is he? That's fine, Wendy. Great. Simon has had to suffer me talking about this guy repeatedly over our car journeys for the last few weeks. Um, so uh, I'm glad Simon's not here because he has suffered through it. This guy, Jeremiah Burroughs, a great Puritan guy from uh, the 1600s, okay, when the Puritans were thriving during the English Civil War. Um, he wrote this book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I recommend it. Banner of Truth have actually done a, uh, an abridged 
plain English version, which is quite helpful. Um, it's about 65 pages long. Um, he talks about how your contentment has to be based on strong foundations in your knowledge of God and your love of God. In fact, just to share a few phrases with you, he's an amazing guy, and I'll, I'll tell you why he's particularly amazing in a second, but these are a few phrases from what he said. He speak, when he's talking about contentment, he's talking about Philippians 4, verse 11, one of Paul's letters, and he says, must be content is too low for a Christian. No, it should be. Readily and freely I will be content. It is suitable to my heart to yield to God and to be content, properly trusting God that he will bring good out of all circumstances. Not only, this is just another quote from him, not only do I see that I must be content in an affliction, but I see that there is good in it. So I don't only say, I must submit to God's hand. No, the hand of God is good. It's good for me to be afflicted. And you can see that in what Paul's been saying to Thessalonians about deliverance from these evil men. He doesn't want them just to disappear and be eliminated. No, actually, there can be good in that challenge, in that affliction. And finally, a contented heart looks to and submits to God's disposal. That is, he sees the wisdom of God in everything. And what makes a person take pleasure in God's wisdom is this. He knows how to order things better than I do. And actually, that witness of this guy is particularly impressive because actually he had more justification for being shaken than most people. If I just give you a very brief bit of his history, he was actually, he went to university, University of Cambridge. He was thrown out of Cambridge because he wasn't Church of England enough, as the Church of England was defined at that time. So he was removed from university after only two years of study as a result of that. He then took on a church leadership role in uh, East Anglia, and he was removed from that position. He was ejected from being a church leader, from being a church minister, because he refused to read a certain book in front of everybody that he felt did not match with the word of God. And so as a result, he was removed from that. He was then exiled to the Netherlands. He was actually thrown out of university, thrown out of church leadership, and thrown out of the country. And he ended up having to go move to the Netherlands, where he took over the congregation there. And he was only invited back once the Civil War started, and the Puritans, the Protestant, uh, main Protestant um, denomination then, was invited to, to take some degree of power within the Church of England. And even then, even when he was invited back, he would not agree with the vast majority of other Puritans. And actually, he was one of only five independents, independently church leaders, who stood up to everybody else and said, no, I don't, we don't, I don't believe that's in line with the word of God. But he did it in a really positive way. He was known as one of the most moderate Puritans who was very keen on working with everybody else to reach joint solutions. So he was hugely respected. Sadly, he died at the age of 47 when he was thrown from his horse. And you just, I just look at his life and I think, wow, how can he? It's just awesome that he can say these things about contentment, isn't it? When you look at his life and what he went through to actually be able to say, no, I'm not shaken. You know, thrown out of university, thrown out of church leadership, thrown out of the country, and yet still able to say, I'm not going to be shaken. I'm going to be stirred to do the right thing. I'm going to be stirred to obedient action in line with my beliefs, in line with what I believe God has placed on my heart. So despite his circumstances, despite our circumstances, we shouldn't be shaken, just to finish. If the band want to start coming up, please. We shouldn't be shaken. Instead, we should be stirred to emphasise our dependence on God, our need to recognise his sovereignty in all circumstances, despite 
how fearsome they may appear superficially, and also stirred to recognize our inability to see the bigger picture and God's ability to know what is to come and to fit us into that. So thank you very much for listening. We should be stirred, not shaken this morning. Please, let's uh, continue to worship. Thank you.